You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hello everybody and welcome back to another amazing episode of Changing Reality. So welcome one, welcome all. If you guys are here to get inspired, well, congratulations, you're at the right place. So for all of you who maybe are not so familiar with the show or this is your first time tuning in, first of all, what have you been doing all this time? Like, this is the place to be. But second of all, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So through the show, we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, industry leaders, business owners, to even artists, musicians, producers, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, all walks of life, and many of them who have spent some time here on the Penn campus or around the area as well. And by hearing these inspiring stories of how they are changing their reality and creating the lives that they want to live, Hopefully, it will give us some insights on things that we can take away to make our lives better, to live the lives that we want as well. And I personally am someone who truly believes in the power of stories. I wanted to do this show simply because I felt like there are so many people out there who make waves in the lives of others and do phenomenal things. And by hearing these stories, um, we are able to kind of like unlock little secrets about the world, about different industries and about people in general. And I'm just super passionate about getting those stories out there to as many people as possible. To show you how much I put emphasis on stories, personally, I actually founded and run a youth movement back home um, in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that started off by just sharing experiences of different individuals, um, C-suite executives, company owners, even individuals, uh, teachers, family members, everyone. And from that small project, today we've grown to working with over 35,000 youngsters from 28 different countries and 700 communities, where we even collaborate with not just in Malaysia with our Ministry of Education, but over communities all across the world to create an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities and projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers while they're still in school, whether that's entrepreneurship or being a musician or a comedian, anything that they're passionate about. And the whole foundation that's enabled us to do this is kind people who are willing to spend their time and share what it is that has made them different, what it is that they has worked for them to others who want to do the same. And I hope that this show at least becomes that platform for all of you, our lovely audience, so that you guys can take away little bits of information and who knows, maybe the next uh, the next people we interview on the show may even be all of you after you go out there and change the world as well. So on to our speaker for today. So as you guys may have noticed, we had a little theme for the last month or so where we've been interviewing phenomenal people in the film and media industry. And today's uh, speaker is probably one of the most amazing people that I've had the pleasure to read about and meet through today's show. And one of these, one of the most amazing things is he's someone who is probably one of the most experienced international multi-genre creative content and programming executives, as well as an Emmy-nominated producer. So he's skilled in conception, acquisition, development, sales, strategic partnerships, and has co-produced and uh, like several physical productions and managed just the finance and oversight of many of these projects as well. So he's uh, worked in various countries around the world from the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and I think over 20 plus non-English speaking countries as well. 
And the amazing part about him is today he serves um, as the SVP uh, or uh, actually one of, uh, sorry, today he actually serves as the, SV, as the president of international TV co-productions and acquisitions at Lionsgate. And he has an amazing story to share with us today. So without further ado, let's welcome Mark onto our virtual stage. Hello. Hi, Hi Mark. Hi, Mark. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. How are you feeling today? Well, uh, it's morning where I am. So uh, I've had my coffee, so I'm rearing to go. What can I tell you? All right. So coffee is essential always before all interviews, you know, it's just a in frame of mind. But as I said, you're someone who has traveled all across the world, is probably a leader in this field of production and producing. And many of the, the people that I work with, whether it's at Penn or whether it's outside of Penn, many of them love film, they love this industry. It's just they have absolutely no idea where do they get started or many of them don't even know that there's a career possible in this. So like for all of us lost, confused college students, were you someone who used to be like us and had no idea what you wanted to do or were you just dead set on this and this was something that you definitely like since young thought that this is the field for me? Well, um, I was very much like you. Uh, I thought I knew what I wanted to do, but it wasn't what I ended up doing. No, when I was in high school, the end of primary school, um, I thought I would go into something traditional because that's what my family was in, whether it was medicine or law. And where I was living in Indiana, in the middle of the United States, uh, uh, in a big city, Indianapolis, which is the biggest city in Indiana and the capital, and one of the bigger, one of the biggest cities in the United States, not the biggest, but um, it had no real film or television industry like many places. It had local news, and that was about it. Um, we didn't really even have a community of local filmmakers at the time. Um, there were a few people trying some things, but nothing uh, uh, extraordinary. So I went to college, to university, um, pre-law. And in the first semester, I no, realized that's absolutely not what I wanted to do. Uh, I was pre-law and politics. Those were my majors and minors. And I switched to English literature and theater. Uh, which didn't so much make my parents thrilled because, you know, saying that you want to write or perform didn't seem like a career path where I was coming from and wasn't anything that my family had done. But fortunately, I was at a terrific small university called Wabash College in the middle of Indiana that gave me a scholarship to be there and also to study abroad uh, for a year. They allowed me to come to England and London, and I was here for nine months studying. They allowed me to go to New York and do an internship, which you know they paid my room and board for, and I got credit for working for David Letterman at the time when he had a show at NBC. And they allowed me to do a lot of different things at the, at the college and explore things. So there's <clears throat> a couple of takeaways in that, in that university is a great time to explore and to change and make mistakes if, if you want, because there's really, you're not gonna fall that far and to try and figure out what you want to do. Sure, it, you can do it outside of a university. It becomes a little harder once you get into an established career path to switch paths, but not impossible. And there's something to be said for being a, a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Had I been at a big university where there were a lot of people doing what I wanted to do, they might have been more advanced. I might have struggled to find a, a way in a place, and I might not be, have been supported as much. So. Uh, the fact that I was in a smaller place and really no one ever told me no. Uh, 
what they told me was figure it out. If you can figure out a path or an option, you can do it. And so it forced me to focus on what I thought I wanted to do. And being at a smaller university connected me to my professors and to experiences. So, you know, by the time I was a senior, I had had all these experiences and also connections to my professors that catapulted me to going to graduate school um, and to graduate film school at the time uh, in New York at Columbia University. And I think had I not had those experiences, I, I might not have gone directly into graduate school uh, and into graduate film school. It was rather competitive at the time. There were only really five film schools um, uh, of any great note when I went to film school. It was USC and UCLA in LA and the American Film Institute and uh, New York University in Columbia and New York. Sh sure, there were other smaller programs, but those were the significant programs. And I kind of thought, well, I didn't know how to get into the business, but if I went to one of those, it might be a great next step for me. Um, and, and there were very few people who went directly from undergraduate to graduate school. And I don't think I would have been able to get in had I not had those um, great experiences in college. So it, 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 it matters less where you are from, especially in this day and age with the internet when you can gain a lot of information and connections and contacts and there's online learning and you all have the advantage of making films or television shows or videos in your dorm room, which we did back when I started, you know, there were 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, eight millimeter film, film cameras. We had video cameras, but they were huge and they were expensive and, and, and it was not many people could afford to buy one on their own. And not just the cameras, but if you had film, the cost of film, the places to process the film, the machinery to edit the film or edit video was really big and cumbersome and expensive. You had to have some experience to know how to operate it. You had to have experience to know how to repair it. Um, uh, and then where could you put or show that film or video? There weren't, as, there weren't online film festivals. There, there wasn't YouTube. There wasn't TikTok. So even if you made it, how could you show it to anyone? So you all now have the great advantage of being able to make, um, you know, when I started, I, I, I was working on one of the first HD high definition short films ever for HBO. This was in the late eighties and the machinery to run that fit into a tractor trailer truck and the cameras were gigantic. And now when you think about it, you've got an HD camera in your phone you have editing software off the internet. You have graphics and effects and music libraries you can acquire off the internet. Um, and you can make it all on your home computer with simple software that you can acquire. And then you can upload it, thereby distribute it, and have it on a number of different platforms. So you've got great advantages that we didn't have when I was starting out in terms of connecting, gaining information, producing something on your own and getting it out there for various people to see it if they can find it that's very very well said and i think that we are definitely yeah. much more luckier than probably how much you had to struggle in the beginning as well and, and i really like that part where you mentioned that 
like especially in college you were able to try out many different things put together stuff but i'm sure it still wasn't easy with and not as as it is now with all the tech and information you have and i'm actually very curious how did you actually get like get started in, in like the beginning stages I, I remember like watching one interview where you said like even things like like linkedin and finding jobs or like interviews were not like as easy as it was now you had to write letters and mail them and wait for responses how that's true Yep, that, so that's true. Been... Back then, we, we didn't have email uh, when I was in university. Um, let me think. So I was in Indiana, and I was going to New York on my own every summer uh, trying to find opportunities. So I was working what you might say basic jobs, working in a big department store selling clothes so that I could be in New York and have the evenings and the weekends and other times to explore opportunities in comedy, in performing and writing. Um, I worked at restaurants in New York, you know, again, not, not what I wanted to do, but it allowed me to live in New York. I lived in a student dorm building in a horrible part of town. Now it's a great part of town in a very tiny room uh, where I could touch the walls. Um, but that allowed me to be in New York which had a, a, not just the culture and other people and the atmosphere, but much different than where I had come from. Um, and uh, as soon as I finished undergraduate, I moved to New York. I was able to get into film school um, as a young, you know, transfer from undergraduate. So there were probably four or five out of my class of 55 that started at Columbia who were just out of undergraduate. All the rest had been out working or doing other things. Some were much older than me. But ultimately, when I said, um, okay, I've explored New York, I've been making student films and producing films and working as a production assistant on big films and commercials, but I'm gonna go to LA and explore some opportunities in Los Angeles. How did I find and meet with people there? There was not email. There were fax machines, if you remember fax machines, but basically, I wrote people letters, and that's what you did. You wrote a letter, and you mailed it, and you waited for it to get there, and then you hoped that they read it, and you hoped that they wrote you back. And you can imagine that that process was minimum two, three, four weeks, maybe even longer before you got a response. And then what you hoped for was a response with a phone number, and you picked up the phone, and you called somebody's office, and you spoke to them, and you tried to set up a meeting. So the fact that you can reach many people on email, people you don't know, uh, cold emails as opposed to cold letters, and it doesn't cost you much of anything to send an email, and you can get a fairly immediate response, and you can set up meetings that way, um, provides advantages. You know, how did I know who to write letters to? I read newspapers, I read the trade magazines like Variety and Hollywood Reporter, and we had a magazine called Premier at the time, but we didn't have all the online uh, opportunities like LinkedIn or Facebook or any other communities or job sites that I could figure out which companies were doing what and who was there and who should I direct my letter or email to. So you have those tremendous advantages to figure out who's doing what at what company, what are they about, how can I reach them, and uh, is there an email address? Is there a phone number? Is there a physical address that I can write them even a letter or, or something or drop a, a resume or a CV off? So yeah, the connectivity you all have at, at, at your age is a tremendous advantage. It makes things easier, but it also means you need to still work hard to connect, to write the right letters, not just to write generic emails, because those are going to get passed over and not seen. 
but to really do your research and figure out something about the people and places you're wanting to explore so that you can write something more targeted That's that hopefully I or others will respond to. I'm going to just take a moment to appreciate that you responded to me to be on this show because like I did not write you a letter. I probably should and 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 like like put a bit more effort in it than just sending a message on LinkedIn. But like, thank you for like agreeing to be on the show. And well, one of the reasons why like I actually watched an, like an interview like before I contacted you about like I think it was a podcast or something where you were actually sharing your journey. And one of the things you mentioned in there was um when you first got this interview at the David Letterman show, I think, and then you you actually had like there were they didn't accept interns from Indiana, which is where you were from at that point of time. And you were one of the first to actually be accepted into that. And that like that is extremely inspiring. And you you shared something that was probably on the merit of the stuff that you've done before. Can you share a little bit about how that process was, how kind of like even that feeling was knowing that this is not something that anyone has done before. And then you being well, in like some over the, the fact was David Letterman was from Indiana. So the natural inclination was all these young people from Indiana would naturally get a job with him or an internship with him because they were also from Indiana or had some family connection or school connection or something. And I think for a, a, a period of time, he and his people resisted that. But I was in New York and um, I had credentials and I was a bit different. I, I didn't have a family connection. I didn't have a school connection, but I had been working in comedy and trying. And so they took a meeting with me and an interview. Um, and there were five internship positions that semester. Um, one sort of technical and the other four, let's call it a form of programming, creative, something like that. But, you know, we were at the very bottom. So basically to start off, we were answering phones and, and letters and getting packages that were sent and going through all, all the stuff that, you know, we were sort of the first um, entry door, you know, people, the stuff would come to us first. And if we thought it was worth passing up or discussing, we would bring it up to our bosses. And so I think it was purely a meeting and maybe it was, you know, they, they saw less that I was just another kid from Indiana and they saw that I was doing some things and they were willing to give me an opportunity. And I was quite determined. And that was my number one, uh, 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 internship that I wanted. And I explained that I was in New York and coming to New York for this internship and was from not one of the big universities. And so somehow they responded. But I, I will say of the four programming interns, two of us uh, got the internship purely on merits. We had no connections. Uh, and two had industry connections. Their parents uh, were working in the industry and were able to make some calls and perhaps you know, influence. And, and I, say, I say to people, if I were in their position, I would ask my parents to do the same thing. You take advantage of any advantage you, you have. Um, it, it's just natural. My sons ask me for my help. If I know somebody in a connection, you want to use every opportunity you have and don't deny it. If you're living in a city that, you know, if you're living in New York or LA or a major capital, that gives you an advantage, of course, from everybody who's not living in the capital. Uh, and making connections. You know, I, I hear from people who are so distantly connected, my mother's dentist, cousin's uh, next door neighbor. You know, you have to use every opportunity to make a more direct connection. Somebody writes you a cold email or letter, you have no connection to them. But if somebody calls and says, hey, could my 
uh, um, son or daughter speak to you, reach you, if it's somebody with some direct or slight connection, you're more likely to respond. So take advantage of every opportunity, every door you can open and kick open. Because the goal is, if you can't get in through the front door, you find a way to crawl in through the side window. And that's, you know, most of the time, front doors are going to be closed. Or there's going to be a lot of people standing at the front door. So you have to figure out other ways, other points of entry. to so either get into a company to reach a person. Um, all of that is because you can assume that, you know, the busier we are, the higher the level of role, the more emails or phone calls or letters or or things that we get. And we have our own form of, call it programming interns, people who are the first port of, of call who wade through all of those cold emails and all of that information that just comes over the door from people you don't know. And if they think it's relevant, they might pass it through in the company. Uh, and if they don't, it's gonna stop with them. And oftentimes people write to me, but it's not something directly within my area of remit. So they're writing the wrong person. They're trying to reach the wrong person. So again, some of those people at a different level might redirect that request or that information to a different area. So it's, it's important to know who you want to reach and why and what they do or what the company does. A lot of times people will write to me, but it's not what my company does. So it's not something that I can uh, uh, action even if I wanted to. So it's important to you know do your research and know as much as you can. Yeah. All right. Very, very well said. And a long answer to how David Letterman, I, I can't exactly tell you how his people chose me. I'd like to say that I was this charming young guy from Indiana and they just saw something in my eyes and, and chose me for whatever reasons they chose me. And it was an opportunity. Um, and while it was my dream internship, it proved to be different than what I imagined. So, you know, it, it, I wasn't doing the glamorous work. Sure, I got to meet some stars and occasionally I got to do some fun things, but a lot of it, you know, at a lower level internship or production assistant role, you're doing what we might call the shit work. You're doing the things that the, the more senior executives don't have to do, don't want to do, but it also was a, a job where I learned that it was more about business at times than it was about show. And so it was a real eye opener to me. That and is it, a very interesting way of putting it more about business than it is about show. And I, and I think that that is something that you learn through experience. And I think that people don't like, it's not something that you just pick up if you read a book or, or if you just think about it yourself. And other than interning at Dave Letterman, you did so many other things in those initial stages as well, trying things out as well. Yeah. And uh, how, how important is it to you that like for you at least, that you had those various experiences, trying out comedy, making your own films and all of that at that point of time. Because I feel like many people want the top job, they want to be successful straight away, but they don't want to do the, the initial stages of trying out and putting yourself out there. Many people want to be the chef uh, uh, and not the, the, the line cook or the sous chef. It <laughs> takes a long time to be the chef. And if you get the opportunity to be the chef, let's say, the leader, the executive producer too soon you're going to potentially fail because you haven't had those formative experiences you haven't um, learned you haven't been mentored you haven't seen options you haven't seen things that work as much 
and that fail as much. Every opportunity educates me. I'm still learning. When I stop learning is when I will retire. So I learned every, I learned something new every week, almost every day, and from every production I'm involved in. So it's important to have those experiences. I think it was important to start at the bottom, to see things from the bottom up. Did I, did I enjoy doing the shit work? Of course I did not. Did I think I was smarter and better than that? Of course I did. And that I should be paid more? Of course I did. But looking back, those were great formative experiences because now when production assistants work for me, I know where they're coming from. And I know the things that I find important for them to know and important for them to do. And I'm better able to guide them, to mentor them, uh, to boss them around, you might say, um, uh, because I have an understanding of it. And, and it's important to see if you're going to work in film and television to see the structure from the ground up. Because then when you are at the top, it gives you a full view of the tree. I've done a lot of different jobs and they've all been helpful to me. And it's a lesson that I learned in film school when I had to take a cinematography class and I was a writer director. And we were getting into very arcane, I'll call it science math about f-stops and exposures and 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 equations that I just didn't understand. And I said to my cinematography professor at the time, I don't need to know this stuff. I'm, I'm a writer director, I'll hire a cinematographer. And he said to me, that's your mistake, Mark, that you don't need to know all of this stuff deeply in depth, but the greater you know it, the greater the conversation you can have with your cinematographer. And you can know whether he or she is telling you the full story and you're able to have a shorthand conversation with them because you can speak their language. You, when they mention an f-stop or an exposure or uh, a sunlight issue or uh, a shadow issue, the more you know, the better you can have that conversation. And it really opened my eyes up. I don't need to know exactly uh, uh, everything a cinematographer knows, but the greater that I know, the better that I can understand what they do and what they need and what I need from them. And that means everybody on the set. I'm not a costumer. I'm not a, uh, um, I, I was a first assistant director, but I don't need to do their jobs. But the more I can understand what they do, the better the shorthand I can have with them. And the more quickly we can all get things done and I can help them. They're here to help me execute the show. And uh, I'm there to enable them to execute their jobs and the show. So it's important that you know as much about all of the people working around you and what they do, um, not just knowing your own little area. Very, very well said. Speaking of, so you you are writer, director, producer, but you also what? started off- Not only purely a producer. Not only producer. I started out that way, but very early on, I realized, I think somebody in film school, one of my good friends said, uh, you're the producer because you have the biggest mouth. Um, however it was, I, I started film school as a, as a writer and director, and I left there having helped them start a producing program, and I left there as a producer. And while I do write, and I certainly edit, and I certainly create things, I am not often at all the writer. Um, I work with directors. I certainly could direct, but it's not what I do. I'm a producer, and that's what I enjoy doing. You were also for a period of time, I think, the director of sales and marketing at 
uh, Cine Vista, I think they were like when you were doing your master's degree in New York. Yeah. How, how that's a little bit like different from what you do right now and also from what you started out in, right? So how did you kind of like end up there and how was that experience formative to you in the world that you do right now? So I was in film school and it, it, it's expensive to be in New York. And yes, my parents were helping me and I had student loans. But ultimately, I was one of those kids who needed to make some money. So I needed a job. So in while I was working at a restaurant uh, in New York, I went and banged on at this. Again, was the time where you didn't have emails. You didn't have LinkedIn. So I looked up all the distribution and film companies in New York. And there were a lot of them, but far fewer than there were in L.A. And I went around in a suit and tie, because that's what you wore at the time. It was less casual. And I had my resume printed out, because that's what you had. You didn't have email in a file. And I went and I literally knocked on the door of all these companies. I walked around Midtown Manhattan in New York, knocked on the door, said, you know, can I speak to somebody about a job? And that summer, Cinevista, which was a independent film and Spanish language film distributor, meaning they put movies in theaters across the United States that were independent films from the United States and around the world and Spanish language films, which we'll talk about. And I said, any opportunity? And they said, well, you can intern for us. And I think I started out at three or $600 a month. And eventually they gave me a job and I did that job most of the first year of, of, of school. So I would go to film school I would do things on nights and weekends. And when I wasn't in school, I would run down to their offices in Midtown from, from um, um, Harlem, Morningside Heights, where Columbia University is. I would take the subway down and I would go back and forth to the office and do my work, which was calling theaters and distributing these films into independent cinemas and um, dealing with that. Now, the great thing that that did is it put me in touch with um, some really terrific independent filmmakers, Derek Jarman at the time, Nestor Almendros, and probably the most famous currently now is Pedro Almodovar and his brother. So I got to meet some really amazing filmmakers uh, early on or at a significant point in their career. And the job let me go to the New York Film Festival and the Miami Film Festival and other things, which you know, was eye-opening, a lot of fun, uh, it made me say, gosh, I want to be here with my own projects, not just other people's projects. Um, and, you know, that's the 10% of, of my job still that people see. They see the glamour and they think that's 90%. And in fact, it's the reverse. 90% of what I do is work and drudge work and office work and meetings. And 10% is the glamour of going out to dinner or lunch or going to a film premiere or a TV screening or a festival or a conference or traveling someplace for fun, for work um, and speaking to people, that's about 10%. And I think for most roles, that's how it is. You might see the finished product. And when I'm standing there in a suit or tux at a party or a conference, I was just at the International Emmys in New York two weeks ago because one of the British shows that I oversee called Motherland on BBC was nominated for best comedy. Unfortunately, we lost to call my agent and Netflix, but um, so that's the fun time is when you get to go from London to New York and you get to put on a tux and you get to go to a fancy dinner 
and you get to see a lot of your colleagues from around the world in the industry and you get nominated for something and that's a great honor even if you don't win um that's five or ten percent of it on a good day so be prepared to put in the hard work the fun comes the money comes but you know all of those jobs you're talking about early on did i make a lot of money no i was a production assistant also in film school running around doing everything bad horror movies independent movies horrible commercials bad music videos some great ones too but um i remember i think one time i was literally in an underground garage shooting a um, a commercial working on a commercial as a production assistant for 24 hours straight supposed to be 12 to 14 hours the director was horrible didn't know what he was doing and we ultimately ended up being there for 24 hours and i think i got paid 150 or 200 dollars for the day now that might sound like a lot of money to some people but it it worked out to i think about 10 dollars an hour which was less than you know the going rate at the time it wasn't a lot let's say and, and remember they take taxes out of that too so it really wasn't a lot um so i did every horrible crummy thing i could do to learn to work with people um, even on those crummy jobs i met wonderful people who i either i called to come work on something with me they called because they heard of something that i could work on and we just connected and that's how we connected we made friends and connections through doing the good things and the bad things and look somebody paid me i worked on a horrible um horror film but there were great people working on it even though the film was terrible um but the great thing is they gave me a van to drive to and from set i got to take it home with me at night and as a kid in new york no one had a car so i suddenly had a van on the nights and the weekends when we weren't shooting which for me and my friends was great because suddenly we had a way to get around town and go places and go out onto long island so we we use this van um so you know there were advantages in everything you do you have to find the silver lining no no i think you illustrated it really really well well one of the things that i do outside of tennis i work with a lot of these kids who have big ideas they want to be youtubers or comedians and all of this and my job is in a way to destroy their dreams a little bit by giving them real world experiences so we actually like like one of the things that i remember when you like we do is we work with the production studio so all of those interested in film go and actually work on a set and then they realize oh gosh there's the hot sun there's the long hours there's so many other things that they didn't see kind of like on the glossy magazine cover and then we know that after you do this for a month those who stick are really passionate about this and those who aren't can go and figure out what they are passionate about it but i guess them out. and that's why some of those early experiences are tough and hard and you don't get paid much and the hours might be long and the work may be less uh rewarding than you feel your your brains allow for but it is to weed people out it, it's initially to see if you can follow direction pay attention to detail um, be proactive but not more so than the authority and autonomy you've, you've been given. We do like people to be proactive. I like people to take uh, opportunity and to come forward, but also, you know, in a production, everybody kind of needs to know their place. Doesn't mean you don't communicate. You know, I get um, grumpy when somebody says, I, I said, well, look, that's laying there or that's broken. And they say, that's not my job. 
And I said, no, that, that's true. That piece of cable or that thing may not be your job, but your job is to work with everyone and to come to somebody and say, hey, by the way, that's laying over there or that's broken or I see a problem, even if it's not my area, to point it out because we all try to work together collaboratively. But when people take too much authority, step too far forward, that's when there can be problems. I tell people, you're never going to get in trouble if you ask questions. There's no stupid questions. There are only stupid people. If, if, if you don't know something, it's not stupid. And, and, it, and, and it is your job to ask. Now, if you ask the same question three times, you might have a deficit of intelligence. That's for somebody else to determine. But if you don't know it, it's not naive or stupid. And you have to ask. And that's how you learn. You just sometimes have to pick the right time and the right place and the right person to ask that question to. But I will never fault somebody who comes and says, I don't know what you want me to do, or I don't know what to do, or I don't know the option. Can I ask you? As opposed to going ahead and blundering forward and just running off on their own and doing something. And you say to them, why did you do that? Why didn't you just ask? And we would have given you some direction. So it's just knowing the balance. Don't feel that you have to, I don't know everything. I'm the first one to say, I don't know everything. And I'm still learning. So if I don't know everything, that clearly people who are working below me may not know everything. So it's incumbent upon you to, to learn and to ask and to keep learning and not feeling that just because you've done a job, you know, when somebody says to me, I've been doing this for 20 years, I say, well, I've been doing this for 30 years and I still am learning. So when somebody tells me they know everything they need to know about what they're doing, that's not somebody I want to hire. All right. That is also really well framed up. I feel like one of the issues that I personally face is I don't know that like at times that balance kind of slips me by. So I think that the way you explained it really, really well. Well, that's why you Maybe. want to find in your job, colleagues, collaborators, mentors, um, friends who you can turn to and ask. Sometimes, yes, coming to your boss and asking a question every other minute, every other day can can either be annoying or you might feel can show your deficits. So some questions, yes, you want to put to the boss or your superiors and other questions you might ask your colleagues, your friends, your industry connections, your mentors. You want to have a, a, a you want to have a, a, um, a family of people around you, a village of people to be able to turn to and say, I'm not sure what I should do in this situation. What would you tell me? Can I ask you? And most people you're going to find are open. And it's also kind of like having that environment that is conducive for the growth and like for you to actually learn from that. But I know many filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers who put in the work, they, they do not even nine to five. I think at times they do nine till probably 3 a.m. in the morning. They go out there, they film, they shoot, they, they're independent, they try things out. And sometimes it feels like the road ahead, like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Like for you at the very least, I'm sure you went through much worse than anyone like, probably, like now probably has. At what point did you start seeing that turning point in your career? Is there a point or do you just one day realize that, oh my gosh, I remember, like, things have changed around me? Um, I, uh, let me think how to answer that. I, I don't know that there's a turning point. I think, you know, in every career, you're going to have successes and failures. You're going to have 
call it regrets or mistakes, and you have to move past those and learn from them and hopefully not repeat them. You're going to have situations absolutely beyond your control. When you work for large companies, publicly traded companies, you work with many different entities, you can't manage and control all of them. There are circumstances, again, beyond your control. I've quit jobs. I've been fired from jobs. I've had um, companies or, or um, remit areas become what we call redundant. They thought they wanted to do that. Now they no longer do. So things are changing. Um, new uh, uh, bosses or superiors come in at a high level and decide they want to change the mandate. They want to turn slightly left or slightly right, or they want to do a 180 degree turn. And that can change a lot of things that can be beyond your control. The, the thing is to roll with it and to have a career is to just continue to move forward. And um, people ask me, I think I probably, of everybody that you ask who's at a role or a level of success that you think you want to be at, I will tell you almost none of them got there on a straight path from A to B. It was a series of zigzags up. It was fallbacks. It was a stepping stones. It was up the ladder here, over here, up here. So there's no right or wrong. Sometimes to get ahead, you have to turn left or turn right. Um, some people have said, well, I want to be in production, but there's an opportunity in finance or marketing or development. And I say, well, look, one, you want to get your foot in. Two, you want to be making money to survive. And getting into the business and getting in with a good company and with good people. So there's nothing wrong with, I, I, I know many people who started in marketing or in legal or in finance who were able to make the transition over to call it production or development or different areas. So don't feel you always have to go in again through the front door. And just as, you know, there are some people who from your view looking outside might seem like an overnight success. There are very few to no overnight successes. Behind everybody that you think is an overnight success largely might be years of failures, of zigzags, of hard work. And it might look like they've just come about, but very few do. It's laying in the hard work. So um, when did I feel there was a turning point? Uh, maybe only in the last 10 years. You know, I think we all struggle and strive to continue to do the things we want to do to make enough money for our families and us to keep moving ahead and to do work that is satisfying. And um, uh, I've had ups and downs and struggles. I've worked on great projects that just didn't come together in the end. I've worked on, you know, projects that, that weren't satisfying. I've worked with people that I didn't always enjoy working with. The great fun of it is when um, you can do projects that are satisfying, that you had a good hand in, you can work with people who you enjoy working with, and you can uh, enjoy the successes of that of those shows. You know, I make TV shows. I can't guarantee, even if I had uh, Brad Pitt and Nicole Kidman in them, for example, that the audience is going to respond and watch the show and embrace it. All I can do is the things that I find um, enjoyable, that are good for my company, that are hopefully going to be, you know, again, it's a business. So as much as I want to do things that I enjoy, they also have to make money.
They have to return on their investment. That's how companies keep going. That's how we get greater resources to make more shows. So um, it's a combination of things. And um, I wish I could tell you I had 100% control all of the time. Even when seemingly I do or did, I don't. Making TV series is a series of compromises. You're never going to get things 100% your way. You're working, it's a village. It takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to make a TV show. So even when you have a very altruistic director on a film or a TV series, or a very uh, um, all-encompassing exec producer, you cannot make it yourself. You have a whole team and staff around you. And if you can't find a way to bring all those people together with the common vision, that show is not going to be successful. It's going to be less than successful and people are going to see it. So, it, you know, the turning point is when you feel that you know how to collaborate, when you feel that you know how to enable others to do their jobs, when you um, can sit, when was the turning point? I'll tell you exactly. When I can sit in the chair behind the directors and everyone else and drink my coffee and have nothing to do. That's when I know I've been successful. When everybody is is working apace and there's no problems and there's nothing I need to, I'm always focused on, on the next day and the future and ahead, but um, there's fewer problems and we're really just able to keep the machine rolling and everything is working in sync. That's when the turning point is. That's when you feel like you've been successful. But you know, uh, a producer's role, my role, or an executive's role is to um, hope for the best and plan for the worst all the time. Enable you know, the best and plan for the worst in a way. You know, and you mentioned nine to five. No, I, I think for most of the roles in my sector, in entertainment and television, if you wanted a nine to five job, this is not the career path for you. I work nights and weekends. Um, at my level, you know, the greater level of responsibility, the greater you have to participate. So there are people that work with me who can clock off. Their responsibilities may not be in answering emails on the weekends and solving problems, but my, my phone is, you know, here with me. And there are emails 24 7, 362 days a year, mostly. And there are emails that I have to respond to. I couldn't say on a Friday, okay, I'm not going to answer emails until a Monday morning, especially because I'm working with so many different countries and time zones. So I can't also only work to my hours in London. I work with Los Angeles, where our headquarters are. I work with uh, people and projects who are in Europe a couple hours ahead, in India, four and a half, five hours ahead, in Australasia, eight, nine, 10, 11 hours ahead. So, you know, it's a constant stream for what I do. So you can't just clock off. You know, I'm often asked, what's the best thing about my job? Every day is different. What is the worst thing about my job? Every day is different. So <laughs> you're looking for a, a, at least what I do. If you're looking for a career path where there's some knowability, I know what I'm going to be doing next month. I know how I'm going to be doing it. Um, there's not uncertainty. Things won't change. This may not be the thing for you. I, I like that things change. It keeps things 
fresh. It's not that I don't do many of the same things and we don't have plans and we don't uh, know what we're doing in a month. We do, but it's subject to change. And you are someone who has worked really on the ground, setting up in different countries, in places where maybe the industry is not as well established. And you are kind of like a pioneer in places for like many films, TV series, especially ones that are, are catered for like those specific countries and communities. How would you actually go about, first of all, starting something at times from literally scratch that also is relevant to the people of the place? Like, like I saw that some of the places you went to, even though it's probably the first like series or the first film um, that is locally kind of like produced for their community, it still ends up being like top five, top in their charts and all of that. How do you like like in these situations where you go in and you you start figuring out like what the audience wants and putting that together in a local context? How do you even begin to wrap your head around all of that? Well, I'll start by saying I didn't know that I had uh, an affinity or an ability for that until you go. You know, if you if you said to me coming from a very American point of view uh, in my upbringing, not that we didn't travel and I didn't live in many places, and not that I didn't live amongst uh, a diverse um, uh, um, uh, cultures and people, even in America, but I didn't live internationally. I spoke Spanish to a degree because that's where I grew up in Texas and then later in Indiana, uh, but I didn't speak other languages and I did certainly didn't speak them fluently because uh, English was was my language where I where I grew up. So going to other countries and 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 embracing other cultures is not something I knew that I was capable of or that I would enjoy until I did it. Coming to understand that I was a bit of a polyglot, that I had an ear for different languages is not something you know until you're thrust into it. And it's not for everybody. And so if you get into these experiences, you'll quickly figure out, I don't like that. It's I'm not great at it. I don't enjoy it. Um, I don't enjoy being away from home or being submersed in other cultures and languages and, 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 and scenarios, or you do. And that's like any experience. Until you try it, you may not know. But you, may, you might find that you have a great affinity for it, that you enjoy it more than you think you will. And so that's the great thing about youth is go try it. If somebody offers you this opportunity, um, I think also in speaking about careers, for most of us, just being a generalist in, in whatever our career path is not enough anymore. Everybody needs to have something specific that they enjoy or are good at in addition to their basic career or a hobby or something that makes them different. Otherwise, how do you stand out in the crowd? And it may be that um, in addition to your basic career, there's fewer opportunities for somebody who really understands Farsi language and um, Farsi culture. But if that's what you do and understand, there are going to be specific experiences that you can speak to. So having some something that makes you a little different, not just being a generalist, is is important. Um, getting back to your question, you know, part of everywhere I went, there was film and TV. It either was at the early stages, or it had been controlled, uh, which meant very limited. Um, and the notion of what we call premium television or film, things that will travel beyond uh, the local environment, the local borders, 
what makes that? And so trying to take, and I think I learned early on, very early on when I was thrust into Russia, you can't impose whether you're American or British or French or Malaysian, you can't, you can take the best of what you know, but if you try and impose that upon another place, there'll be tremendous resistance and it won't work. So early on, I realized I'm going to take the best of what I know and try and match it to how they do things and, um, and try to find the middle ground. So try to elevate what they've been doing without throwing out what they've been doing. And also because you can't take the skills and the success, you know, again, not that many other places didn't have established film and television industries like Nollywood and Bollywood and, and many other countries, Russia even, were producing film and television. But sure, Hollywood had a very established system, made a lot of film and television that went around the world, had very skilled technicians, had film and television schools that existed where in other countries they didn't had um, career paths and programs. You know, in a lot of countries, moving to the capital and doing film or television, it was a very small industry. We're in Los Angeles and, and New York and other places. It was a significant industry, right? So there were more opportunities. There were more productions being made. So to take this, this golden process from Hollywood and try and drop it into another country that either didn't have yet the enough people, enough machinery, the infrastructure, or um, people with the, enough of the education in that field to do it um, would have just imposed failure upon them. So rather than taking a Hollywood way and say, or a British way and saying, right, we're just gonna do it exactly this, the goal was take, take what you know and find the middle ground. And hopefully, so on the first project, it's 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 baby steps right you're trying to move things forward on the second project you're hoping to build upon the foundation that you've established you find the people who really do work well and who get it and you keep them around and you learn from the first or one or two projects and you say okay i tried it this way we tried it this way didn't work as well so let's pivot uh for the second project or the third project and so you know you're getting better and better and ultimately, you're helping to move their industry forward by enabling them to um, do things in a different way, hopefully, not, um, uh, and hopefully a better way. I used to say to people everywhere I went, um, why do I know these things? It's not necessarily because I'm smarter than you. And in fact, I probably am not smarter than you. It's that I've seen more things. When I was working, in, you know, let's say in the United States, I might work on three or five or 10 projects a year, development, production, whereas in a smaller place, they might only see one or two projects a year. And the people who mentored me had tremendous experience. And the people who were working around me often had significant experience. And they often, not all, but let's say they went to film and TV school or they had been working in the industry for a number of years. So what I brought was I, I, I would say to people, you've seen three ways to get somebody out of door funny. We're making a comedy. How can we get them out the door in a funny way? You've seen three ways. I've seen 10. And that's purely from experience and breadth of experience. And when you have 10 options in your head, you're able to look and choose the better options. When you only have three options in your head, 
you're choosing from amongst the three. So the more experience you have, the more things you've seen and done, the more uh, you're going to get ahead. You're going to see a problem before it happens. You're going to see a solution. You're going to know more solutions. And it's going to help you to make a better uh, project or work with people in a different way. So, you know, and, and I, I would love to say we're all different. Every place and country I go to, we're all very different. But in many ways, we're more alike than we think. And the language of film and television making, the process, whether we have millions of dollars or thousands of dollars, if, if we're making something scripted, it's actors, it's a script, it's a camera and sound recording. The process is the same the world over. It's how sophisticated that process is. It's what we often say is how many elephants we have on the set. On a big production, we might have a lot. On a small production, we have few to none. But the process is the same. We go through, we film something, we edit it. It's the same. That's actually really, really comforting to hear, especially for a lot of people who may not have like the resources that, that they see others have. But I think that you're right. The process is the same. And there is some place they can start off from that. When, when, you, when you put together these shows, when you put together these series, there's a lot of hard work that we, the audience, definitely do not see. I feel like we take for granted too much like what at times, and everyone's a critic nowadays. So you like we, we try to interpret, analyze, and dissect everything that happens without any inkling of the effort that's being put in. For, have you ever faced, and I'm sure every great producer has, but have you ever faced any criticism for the work that you've done after putting so much effort and so much time and so much love and heartbreak into it? How do you cope with criticism once you get it in a sense? Well, you get it from your family, your friends, from the industry, and obviously now you get it online uh, in various places and sources, whether it's um, positive or it's negative trolls. Look, do things that ideally satisfy you, maybe not 100%, as again, in every role you're going to do, there are compromises. No one ever gets 100% of their way, not even directors with final cut. You might say they didn't always get it. There's going to be compromises through the process. So you want to you know, try to satisfy yourself first. That's all you can ever do. Ideally, you got paid for that project. Or if it was a, a student project or a calling card, it served a purpose. It went to a film or TV festival. It got you into school. It got you a meeting. It, it did something for you going forward. And beyond that, you know, if it's uh, well-reviewed, um, that's great. Um, we would say in television and streaming these days, it's less about the reviews. It's more about how many people watched it. How many eyeballs were on it? That's that's a level of success. But you have to realize not every show is going to be Squid Game. Not every show is going to get millions and millions of viewers. So the question is, with what it was trying to do, did it reach the audience that you were trying to reach? And if it broke out beyond that, that's a bigger success. But um, you can't do things for critics. You have to do it for yourself uh, and for your lifestyle and your family. Um, if it's earning a living and moving you forward. And the main thing is, you know, e even if it went smoothly, did you learn? Did you enjoy it? Did you like working with the people? 
you know, at this point in my career, I would rather work on projects that are satisfying to me with people that I generally enjoy working with. And all I can do is put it out there and hope that it is well marketed and that the audience finds it. But once it leaves my hands, it's not 100% out of my control, but it's out of my control. I don't control necessarily the marketing budgets and the plans and the networks or the streamers and what night they might put it on and what season they might put it on. You know, ah, this would have been a great show in the summer, but not in the winter. Or it's unfortunate that everybody is talking about another COVID variant when my show is premiering. And I wish that's what they were talking about and not talking about other things. So, you know, there are things you just cannot control. You just have to do the work that you feel right about and uh, hope that the audience finds it. And there have been many shows that I thought, God, this is a great thing. And it did fine, but you know, it didn't break out. And other things that I thought it was great. I can't tell you what made it stand out and above other than hopefully we had a great script and we had a great production and it just came about. But there have been little ones that I could tell you that, you know, I wish people paid more attention to and others that I'm thrilled that they did. Well, I'm going to have to get a list from you of things that I've got to watch now that you told me that there's all these little gems I've been missing out. And I will definitely take your opinion as this you as you are an Emmy nominated producer for not only Motherland, I think you actually worked on a previous project that was also, I think, like won an Emmy in Romania, if I'm not mistaken, a while ago. That's true. So, a decade ago, a terrific uh, documentary about a really intriguing artist. It was the first uh, international enemy that HBO won at the time. And that director, 10 years later, uh, was Oscar nominated just this past year for a Romanian documentary called Collective. So it's, it's nice to see the rewards he got 10 years ago on a different documentary and that his career has continued and I'm still in touch with him. Um, and he's continued to succeed. The, the greatest joy you can have beyond doing your work is the people that worked for you, with you, around you, that you mentored that are succeeding. And in many of these countries, you know, the work that I started 15, 16 years ago in Russia or eight, nine, 10 years ago in the Middle East, to see people who were production assistants or junior um, executives or, or um, uh, skilled workers in the face, to see them now as the cinematographers, the producers, the head writers, the directors. There's a protege of mine who um, uh, is a significant director in the Middle East now, just did um, half of uh, uh, Netflix's last series in the Middle East. And he's attached to a number of projects, film and television, and he's writing his own ticket. And he was um, a development associate slash production assistant slash right-hand man slash everything for me on my first Middle Eastern uh, um, project in 2012, 2013. And so that's the great joy is to see people that you uh, met and enjoyed working with and you hope that you enabled and mentored and five, six, 10, 15 years later to see them continuing on and succeeding in their careers. That's a great reward as well. That's better than any critic could ever give you. That, that is absolutely brilliant to hear. And I think I've had so much fun talking to you and I think our audience is probably 
like I, they probably need three days to digest all of the information they have to watch it like watch this interview back like at least twice to, to get the real essence of what you're saying because there's just so much insight that i personally learned and i'm not even in the film industry so thank you so much for spending your time with us and final question before yeah. we, like we end there's you you've met so many people in this industry across the world across like, uh, like different regions different types of shows yeah. What do you think someone needs to succeed? Like we know it's not necessarily connections, even though that does help a lot. We know that a lot of people are passionate about it. But in your point of view, or in your experience, what have you seen are the things that make or break someone's career? Well, I think there's one thing you can always fall back on, education. And I don't just mean university or graduate school. I mean, knowing as much as you can about the path you've chosen, uh, the things that you're doing, the people you're working with. And, and again, speaking about cinematography, knowing as much as you can about the areas that intersect with you. So you're in development. You don't need to know how to do marketing, but you need to know about what they're doing and it'll help you have a better conversation with them. So you can always fall back upon your education. And then look, this particular industry there's no set career path. It's not like, oh, I've got a medical degree. I passed my, my medical tests. I can start practicing medicine in a certain country. And most doctors, there's always a need for a doctor, uh, just as there's always a need for a plumber or an electrician. There is not always a need for a film or television producer. There's no guarantee. No one ever hired me because I went to Ivy League graduate film school. Never. Few people early on were interested, and I've certainly run into other people who've gone to that school or went to an opposing school and said, oh, I went here, you went there. I've never been hired because I have that degree. So you have to keep that in mind. It's not a guarantee just because you have a master's or a PhD or even an undergraduate degree. It's not a guarantee of a job. Uh, these days. So, and as I said, I've, I've made mistakes. I've had great successes, sometimes all in the same year. I've left jobs and positions and I've had them in effect leave me. So if you want to stay in this business, you have to have a degree of perseverance um, uh, because there will be ups and downs and because there is no guarantee. And just because I might've produced some great things five years ago, is no guarantee that I'll be able to produce them now. So you just have to persevere through the, the, the valleys as much as over the hills. And those are the sort of, you know, that I picked up from other people. Um, these are not things I uh, necessarily originated, but all these lorberisms um, are, are things that I picked up from mentors and jobs and roles. Um, you know, I, I think I tell a famous story of when I was a production assistant for my producing professor who was a famous producer in New York. And I came into his office and um, I, I said, I've got a problem. And he said, get out. And I was shocked because he we're, we're quite friendly. And he said, get out. And I said, come again. And he said, get out. He said, I don't pay you to bring me problems. I pay you to bring me solutions. So when you've got some solutions, come back and we'll discuss them. But don't bring me the problem. Bring me the solution. And, and I'll be happy to, I want to know, what do you think? 
What would you do? What are the options? What have you thought through? And I'll be happy to discuss those with you, but don't just come to me with the problems. And it's something that stuck with me. So all of these things are things that I've picked up through my career. Just as I say to people, there are no stupid questions. If you don't know it, it's not stupid. And there are many things I ask, I ask dumb questions all the time because there are many things that I don't know. Sometimes I ask it just to see what they're gonna say, but um, you, you, you have to explore and ask. And so all of these things, it, I, again, getting back to it, I'd say it's education and perseverance, um, making connections because no one succeeds in this, in this career alone uh, and having colleagues and friends who you can um, commiserate with, celebrate with, all of the above, that's part of the process. Well, thank you so much. And as I said, like this has been something that has given me a lot to think of. And I think it's sound advice in whatever our audience chooses to do. But thank you so much for actually spending your time. You are definitely someone who one interview alone does not do justice to. And I hope maybe someday we can have you back on the show because there's just so many things that I want to ask you. And I can imagine sure. our audience is probably going crazy as well. Yeah, but, but I tell you. people, this was my path, Harsha. If for anyone out there listening, take if there's something useful to you, everybody's path and career is different, but this is just my path. All right. Well, thank you for sharing it with us. I hope you had as much fun as I did, like listening to your story. I love your, your enthusiasm. That's half the battle. Keep it up. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And to all our audience, if you enjoyed today's show, let us know in the comments below. Um, you can let us know if there's anything you want to discuss, any questions that you have, and we'll try to address them in future sessions as well. So thank you guys so much for watching. This has been Changing Reality, and see you guys next Thursday. Till then. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.